You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host. I've got uh, James McGregor of Blue Tribe. He's the CEO. Uh, James is uh, hailing from Australia. So we're we're going across the globe here today to bring uh, people in L.A. a little enlightenment from uh, the Australian continent. So, uh, James, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Well, tell us a little bit, James, about uh, your life path and what... Uh, what brought you to work on the environment? Uh, I saw a little bit on your bio that uh, you were in the army. Uh, so uh, that isn't normally known as the path towards environmentalism, but in your case, it was. Uh, well, it was, yes. Um, so I think, you know, the, I guess the armies or militaries around the world are there to protect the things that we love the most. Uh, and I guess the environment is sort of, it's just a different mission uh, these days. So I guess a lot of my background, um, yeah, so I, guess I, was, I was in the Australian Army in cavalry, so armoured, uh, armoured use, ran tanks and all that sort of good stuff when I was uh, young and bulletproof. Uh, and then I ended up moving into managing research programs. Uh, and I ended up working for an organisation called the CSIRO, which is Australia's National Research Agency. Uh, and all of your listeners at the moment, I can guarantee they're using CSIRO, CSIRO technology every single day because CSIRO were the inventors of Wi-Fi, uh, amongst many, many other things. Uh, and whilst I was there, I was working mostly in like renewable energy technologies or low emissions power generation technology. So I worked on some really cool stuff from you know, smart grids to, you know, we built world record-breaking solar technologies. We worked with a lot of the US labs. Uh, on some of those things around solar thermal power generation. Um, we worked on smart fridges, uh, sustainable housing, biofuels. Um, and for, I guess, a, a tech nerd like me, it was like being a kid in a candy shop uh, in many ways. Uh, but as, as we're working on these projects, you know, we're doing some very leading-edge re- leading research. Um, I guess I, I got increasingly frustrated that we had all these amazing ideas. You could see the problems in the world, particularly around things like climate change. Uh, and that, and we were developing all these amazing solutions, but they weren't getting out into the world to actually deliver the impact. So it was great research, but it wasn't actually getting commercialized and being used out out there in the real world. Um, and and so yeah, you know, I had those one of those thoughts. You know, someone should really do something about these, you know, this great technology, and someone should get out there and do that, do you know, do something with this great stuff and, and make a real impact in the world. And then I had one of those dangerous thoughts that often get you into a lot of trouble. And it's well, maybe I can do that. Um, but I didn't actually act on it. Um, you know, it was one of those things of, you know, I was in a good career and had a young family and, you know, all those risks of trying to go out and do your own thing. Um, and so, yeah, it was really there was a, a degree of fear that was holding me back. And then in my personal life at the same time, my mother got motor neuron disease, uh, which if you know anything about motor neuron disease, it's a, a horrible, horrible disease, which only typically has one outcome. Uh, and my father at the time, who was also served in the army, um, he was the CEO of a uh, not-for-profit that built um, custom bicycles for kids with cerebral palsy. And so he had to retire, retire from his job to become mum's full-time carer, and then eventually she passed away. And then yeah, about a month after she died, he got diagnosed with lung cancer. Uh, and then yeah, that, that progressed and he ended up dying about 11 months after my mother. And it was one of those moments uh, um, where you sort of, you know, he died a day after his 65th birthday and I was talking to my wife saying, you know, I'd had all these ideas about going out and trying to do my own thing and um, I didn't want to get to, you know, 65 in a day and not have tried uh, to do some of the stuff that had been bouncing around my head for so long. And one of my things my father used to always teach me as a kid, which I never really understood until I got older, is that 
he said, you know, when you're afraid, fear is a good thing because fear has a job to do, right? And the, the fear's job is to tell you when you need to bring courage to the table, right? Because without fear, courage doesn't exist. And so um, you know, after he died, I just basically said, that's it. I quit my job and I launched the company uh, and not with no plan. That's not a not an approach I would advocate for people listening. Uh, but uh, And then here we are today working on some amazing projects from, you know, TV show production, uh, through to trying to deal with the problem of uh, end-of-life solar panels and how to recycle them. Well, it's a fascinating story and, and a great one to tell as, uh, of course, uh, you know, condolences to your, you for your mom and your dad's passing. But, uh, you know, it's a beautiful thing that you took that and brought it out into life and kind of brought their, you know, I'm sure there's energy of spirit uh, to what you're doing now. And, uh, you know, I love the quote that your dad had about fear as a job to do and it kind of tells us when we need to bring courage to the table. I think that's fantastic wisdom that uh, we can always look at and can help us. And tell us uh, about some of the projects that you're working on. Uh, you're you're based out of Sydney. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, so I'm in a, in a town called uh, Newcastle, which is about... I'll put it in American metrics, about 120 miles north of Sydney uh, on the coast. So the area is yes, famous for uh, some of the world's best uh, surf beaches up here. Uh, if you like wine, it's one of the West uh, best wine regions in Australia and internationally renowned for its wines. Uh, and ironically, um, given the topic that we're talking about today, it's also the largest coal export harbour on the planet. Um, so we have export something like 160, 170 million tonnes of uh, thermal and coking coal all around the world. Uh, uh, and so yeah, being a sustainability professional in the coal heartlands, interesting, uh, but there's also a lot of other great stuff going on. So like we're working on projects um, looking at uh, what to do with uh, rooftop solar panels when people decide to get rid of them. So what we're seeing yeah, globally is that one of the biggest uh, waste streams of electronic waste is actually rooftop solar. Um, and at the moment, there's not a real good way you can recycle, recycle them to some degree. <clears throat> but a, lo- a lot of these panels that are coming off roofs and going into basically landfill uh, might only be 10, 12 years old, and their service life is 30 years. So we're working on a project called Second Life Solar where we redeploy these uh, rooftop solar panels into community solar gardens um, to give people who may necessarily not necessarily have access to solar um, access to their own solar plot um, using these secondhand uh, solar panels. Uh, we're working on some amazing projects around you know, looking at digital. Let me ask waste. you. A, let me ask you a question, a follow up question on that. Uh, why is it that uh, people are getting rid of them after ten to twelve years if they have a thirty year lifespan? Is it because they are um, they're upgrading to a better panel or what? So, so typically the, the reason they get rid of them, so there's two main drivers. One is, you know, the, for whatever reason on the property that the solar panels are installed, they might have to do repairs to the roof or do a roof upgrade. And it's actually cheaper to get rid of the panels than it is to try to take them off and put them back on. But the vast majority uh, is that we're seeing, you know, people are starting to see the benefits of solar. So what they're doing is they're upgrading their system. So, you know, 10 years ago, they might have put in, say, a two kilowatt solar system. Uh, and then today in sort of 2021, they're putting in panel systems between sort of five and 10 kilowatts. And, and over that time, um, all the electrical rules have changed. And actually, and so this creates some, there's some regulatory problems, uh, particularly in Australia, 
around mixing those two, an older system with a newer system. So what happens is people throw away the older system and put and put in a bigger upgraded system, which is creating this waste issue. Uh, and we're seeing this this trend uh, is happening all over the world, um, and I'm sure it's happening in the US as well, where we're getting these what we call adolescent systems um, that are only, only partway through their service life um, being disposed of as people go for you know, bigger and better uh, solar systems. But even though, and the, even though the panels are, are perfectly serviceable for another 20 years. So what are you doing to, uh, you're putting these in solar gardens uh, for areas that just don't have that type of, uh, you know, solar system existing and, and using them to generate power for those areas that. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is, um, so what we're developing is, so we're working with some of the research groups here, developing up a, a testing procedure to make sure that, you know, these panels, um, we can test them and confirm they still work and, they don't, and that there's no safety issues with the operations of them. Uh, and you know, it's one of the challenges with this particular project, it's like a two, it's a two-sided problem. So we need to incentivize the person, the person who owns the panels now, who's getting rid of them to bring them to us or to actually contact us to collect them. So we need to incentivize them somehow. Uh, and then we also got the technical issue of how do we actually confirm the panels are serviceable and working and can be engineered and put into a, into a solar facility. So on the incentive side of things, uh, we're looking at a range of um, uh, incentives around, you know, these solar gardens. If you bring us your old solar panels, you effectively become a shareholder in this solar garden and you can either choose to take a dividend from the energy we sell from the solar garden or you can donate that money to uh, illicit charities. Um, so we're trying to come up with a mechanism to encourage people to actually understand that these panels can have a second life uh, to bring us to us. And then there's just the purely engineering issues around how do you put, you know, if you've got 400 different manufacturers of panel. So typically if you did a big solar garden, they would all be exactly the same panel, right? That all have the same um, electrical characteristics, which makes the engineering quite trivial. Um, but if you're bringing in one kilowatt from this house and now from our one kilowatt systems from 10,000 different locations, how do you actually get all of those panels to work together in a single solar field? Uh, and there, there are engineering solutions to that, but we're trying to make sure we do that in a, as economic a way as possible um, to make the whole thing uh, financially viable as well. How far are you away from actually launch of, of one of these solar gardens created so, by the recycled solar panels? The first project or demonstration project will go in later this year, probably around Christmas time uh, this year. Uh, and it's going in a um, actually at a landfill facility, of all things, um, where we're actually going to use it to power the recycling facility. Uh, so it's in a, a town called Dubbo in uh, western New South Wales. Uh, and so, yeah, so at the moment, we've got the panels um, at a research facility being tested, uh, and then they'll get deployed out later later this year. So we should have an operating system, hopefully by Christmas this year. Well, that's a real win-win situation. A, it doesn't get recycled, and then B, you can use it to to power this facility. So there's a there's a secondary win out of the out of this situation, and and uh, great uh, thinking in terms of incentivizing owners to give it to get have them be shareholders or give them a, an opportunity to donate their shares, which probably gives them some tax benefits there too. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you're listening to Unite and Heal America. My guest. Today is James McGregor, CEO of Blue Tribe uh, in Australia. Uh, fascinating stuff. And I think it helps inform us Californians as to what we could do to improve our environment. We'll be back in just one minute. You're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern, your host, and our guest today, James McGregor of Blue Tribe, uh, CEO there. 
And James, we were just talking about uh, what you're doing in Australia. And I wanted to uh, pivot to another topic as far as a TV show that you're creating and, and why you're creating it. And what do you think uh, the effect of this show is going to be uh, on your community? Yeah, so, so, so yeah, we are. So we're doing lots of diverse projects, you know, from solar recycling through the reality TV shows. Uh, so, so it's probably worth taking one step back around, you know, why are we making this show in the first place? Um, so we, we were working on a project where, uh, with actually one of the, the state governments uh, here in Australia, where they asked us the question, you know, how do we get, you know, the homeowners to upgrade their homes or build more sustainable housing at scale? So not just like a niche market, uh, which sustainable housing is these days. You know, how do we get everyone um, interested in building more sustainable homes? And, and the go-to strategy for, I guess, for people in the sustainability space for the last, you know, 30, 40 years is, you know, let's just educate people, right? Well, let's give them a fact sheet. Let's tell them why it's good for the environment. Let's give them a good business case on what the payback they get from their energy efficiency. And, and the problem with that approach is that uh, it assumes that human beings are rational and that human beings make decisions based on rational thought, right? Uh, and well, not unfortunately, but the way human beings, human beings are hardwired to make emotional decisions, right? So if you go back thousands of years when we were out hunting out on the plains, if something with big teeth came along to eat you, you had to immediately respond to the chemicals being produced in your brain, so things like cortisol and oxytocin and ghrelin, and run away immediately or you got eaten by that thing with big teeth, right? So, so those human beings that responded to chemicals being produced in their brains um, survived to then find mates to then reproduce, and you have that you repeat that cycle over thousands of years, uh, and you have us here today. And so, human beings are still driven by emotional decision making. And so, uh, and if you don't believe me, um, well, let me give you a scenario. So, imagine um, you go down to the local mall. So, do you have things called food courts down in your malls? Oh, yeah. Basically, it's like the food area. Yeah, okay. So, imagine you go down to your local mall and you want to get a um, a chicken sandwich. All right. So, you head down to the section of the mall, uh, the food court that sells chicken sandwiches. And there's two shops. So one's, you know, we sell chicken sandwiches and chicken sandwiches are us. The one on the left, so we sell chicken sandwiches, there's 10 people in line, there's a bit of buzz, there's lots of activity going on. Um, everyone looks really happy. And then the other shop on the right um, is empty, it's deserted. There's not a soul there, right? So as far as you know, they're both the same price. They both produce the same quality food. You know, which line do you choose? All right, Probably now, the one with the people in it, right? That's right, yeah. And so most people, so over 80% of people would choose the line with 10 people for no good rational reason in that, but what's happening in their brains is there's alarm bells going off, right? Going, there's something wrong here. I don't have the information to make that decision. Therefore, I'm going to go with the tribe, right? I'm going to go with the herd, right? Because they must know something I don't, right? And so human beings have evolved to make these emotional decisions very, very quickly. And then we're like, we'll post-rationalize it later about why we had to buy that knife to cut through a shoe at 2 o'clock in the morning when we came home from the pub. Um, we'll come up with a reason why we really needed that, but we actually we already made an emotional decision. And so when we looked at the research, um, what we found was that um, TV shows and storytelling is the way human beings have passed on knowledge for thousands and thousands of years, right? And TV shows are excellent at activating people's emotions. And so we got this idea, well, if, if that's the mechanism for getting people to buy into an idea, it doesn't matter whether you want them to buy a sports car or upgrade their kitchen bench top, a TV show is a vehicle to get people emotionally invested in an idea. And so um, we actually developed up this TV show called Renovate or Rebuild, uh, which is you know, literally coming to the last two days of filming at the moment. Um, we'll go to air 
on Australian networks uh, in late August. And the TV show looks like any other um, lifestyle-type TV show, right? It's got a very particular format. In this case, it's based around a family who owns a property. Um, they're trying to work out, do they knock it down and start again or should they renovate their home? And we have two teams competing to sort of pitch their ideas to get them to, to win the competition. And there's, you know, there's a prize at the end of all those sorts of things. So it looks very typical to a lot of lifestyle TV shows. But what we do is we um, build into the storyline and the narrative of the show. We talk, instead of talking about you know, the really cool style of kitchen benchtop, we talk about stuff like insulation and solar panels and battery systems and energy efficiency. Uh, and the, the analogy I use, it's a bit like when you're trying to get your kids to eat vegetables and you might make, say, spaghetti bolognese and you'll blend up the vegetables into the mince so the kids don't know the vegetables are in there. So very much the TV show is very much along those lines. So it's the show about how to build a healthy, efficient, sustainable home, um, but all that sustainability stuff is sort of just hidden in the storyline. So you sort of, you're learning this stuff as you go by enjoying, enjoying an entertaining TV show. Uh, and the research shows that this, you know, this is the way sort of how to get to a mass audience. Uh, and so that's what we're, that's what we're doing. Well, that's a great idea. Actually, uh, I'm kind of kicking around uh, TV show ideas here in LA uh, because of the same reason, essentially trying to take um, these ideas of environmental uh, protection to the masses and, and quite frankly, one of our guests on the on the uh, show, the radio show recently had talked about as an advertising executive, he had, uh, you know, talked about kind of reframing the way we talk about the environment, because the way we talk about environmental problems isn't very persuasive. So he was yeah. talking about uh, a pollution blanket versus. Uh, the other ways that are more scientific that people talk about uh, climate change, which don't hit people emotionally very effectively. Yeah, I think, I think yeah, I think people who work in the sustainability space, and, and we've been doing this, and I've been guilty of this, you know, we, we try to educate people into making good decisions, but we don't make the information meaningful to them. All right. So, um, and I agree that, that the whole issue around being you're really scientific. You know, talking to people in scientific terms about climate change assumes that they're like a climate scientist and they understand what we're talking about. Um, so we need to make some of these issues more accessible to people and, and talk about what's the benefit to them of behaving in a different way for their lifestyle, right? Not for what we think is important for them, you know, because the mission's not enough. Like, you know, I'm a sustainability person, so I wake up in the morning, I think about, well, how can I help my clients reduce carbon emissions or reduce waste or, or whatever? I, I live and live and dream, dream and sleep about that sort of stuff. 99.9% of the population don't wake up, didn't wake up this morning saying, I need to reduce my carbon footprint, right? They, they were like, okay, I've got to get the kids to school, I've got to get to work, I've got to go buy some groceries, i got to go to the doctors, um, you know, I've got to get the kids to sport. You know, they had a million other things on their mind um, and the environment was not one of them, all right? But what we need to do is work out of those things that they're doing throughout the day, how can we attach an, environment, you know, an environmental behaviour to those sorts of benefits? So... If we people upgrade the energy efficiency of their home, maybe they love going out to dinner with friends, right? So if your home's more energy efficient, that means you're going to have more money in your pocket so you can go out to dinner more often, right? So the tangible benefit's important to them, but the outcome from our perspective is a reduction in carbon emissions because they're using less energy. Uh, so I think we need to sort of have the, I 100% agree with him, you know, the way we framed environmental issues and how we approach that um, is, has been completely wrong, uh, and which is why we've polarised 
you know, and that's why we've got this issue. We've got climate deniers and climate believers. I, that, that they, they all want the same thing. Uh, um, interestingly, years ago when Al Gore came out with his Inconvenient Truth, I used to do a lot of public speaking at community events. Uh, and I had this event where we had about 100 people in the room. I was talking about climate change and some of the renewable energy technologies we were developing. And it was 50-50 down the middle that there was people who believed that climate change was real and humans are causing it, and the other half of the room just thought it was all rubbish and the climate had always been changing. And uh, I remember when I, when I was a kid, it was no hotter today than it was when I was a kid. And they were willing to like almost get into a physical fight over their opinions. And so I stopped actually this presentation midway through and I took half of the people out outside that believed in climate change and they kept the other half in the room and I got them to write a list to say like sit down as a group and come up with the five or ten things that you want in the future for your kids right and then I brought them back in the room and got them to present back their list and they had exactly the same list right it was exactly the same thing uh, and so they yeah they wanted clean air they wanted great biodiversity they wanted more renewable energy um, yeah they wanted their kids to enjoy all the natural wonders of the world right and so I sort of said to the group you know both, both, both of you want exactly the same future, yet you're willing to get into a punch-up over the science of climate, which none of you are qualified to talk about because none of you are climate scientists. If we all want the same future, um, it, do, acting on climate change today just gets us there quicker. So what are we all fighting about, right? So, um, so I think we, we need to find that common ground and get people to understand what's in it for them for this future world where we've treated the environment properly uh, and we've looked after the planet. Um, and then frame the information to them in terms of what's in it for them, uh, as opposed to what we what we think they want. That's what actually what they want. Well, that uh, it kind of goes to uh, as a trial attorney. There's a there's kind of a famous school of thought that you refer to as the reptilian brain, and uh, talking yeah. to p- people's reptilian brain, and uh, and that's kind of the oldest part of the brain in the back of the head, and. And it's and it's uh, the fight or flight type response. It's the emotional response. It's it's the automatic system, and that uh, you know part of that is getting making it uh, clear to say a jury that they are going to benefit by helping out your client, and that's there's a benefit to them, and yeah. uh, and when people then see that benefit to them they act, you know, more likely that they're going to act in accord with that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's, it's the, it's, we call it the WIFM, right? What's in it for me? Um, you need to find out what that is and then frame your position around that. Right. So uh, what, uh, what kind of research did you do going into creating the show to see what were the, the things that might be most effective at communicating to, to a, a mass audience. So, so we worked with um, a number of universities, and they basically went uh, went and looked at um, some of the most successful TV shows that had influenced consumers' choices. And some of these were not shows around trying to influence better choices, but shows that were really effective. And looked at you know what what was it that they did um, that uh, that the um, we could emulate through our show, which we can hear about after the break. James, I'm going to just cut you off for a second there because we're going to go to our break and we'll be right back. And James is going to pick that up. You're listening to Unite and Heal America at KBC 790. This is your host, Matt Matter, listening to talking with James McGregor of the Blue Tribe uh, in Australia. And we'll be right back with James in just one minute. 
You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern and our guest again, James McGregor of the Blue Tribe. And uh, James, we're just talking about the TV show that you're creating and how it is that uh, you were able to uh, put together a show that will hopefully be persuasive to people to change their behavior regarding the environment. Yeah, so so the, the show is very science driven um, in terms of you know, its design, uh, and le- yeah, in the design phase of the of the project, we worked with a lot of universities, uh, a lot of social scientists, and I'm an electrical engineer, so we're not known for our social skills, uh, but <laughs> had to work with a whole lot of social scientists and behavioural scientists. And what they did is they went and had a look at um, shows around the world that were really effective at engaging audiences. And getting them to act, you know, in some way, you know, whether it be buying a new house or um, you know, changing their behaviour in some way, not not so not so always in good ways, but shows that were effective in, in achieving that. And they looked specifically at sustainability as well. And one of the interesting things about, um, or one of the problems with the word sustainable, is that if I go and ask a hundred people what does sustainability mean to you, I'll get a hundred different answers. Right? It's it's a term that's you know, not very well defined. Um, it's open to a lot of interpretation. And when it comes to housing, what, what we found was that when, when we talked to someone about living in a sustainable house, what they thought that meant was that they needed to um, grow dreadlocks, uh, live in a commune, uh, wear a tie-dye shirt in a hobail house with a rammed earth floor uh, with no electricity, electricity in the house, right? So that was their impression of, when we use the term sustainable housing, that's what they thought sustainable housing was. Um, and we talked earlier about, um, you know, you mentioned before the reptile brain. Um, so, you know, human beings have grown up to be very tribal, right? Because being part of a tribe means you're safe, right? You're protected and you had access to resources. And therefore, human beings that were part of a tribe uh, were more successful. Uh, and so, being very tribal um, people, um, when you say you should build a sustainable house, people think of that dreadlocks and tie-dye shirt and living in a commune, and they go, that's not my tribe, therefore that house is not for me, right? And you basically lose, you turn them off, right? So, so when, you, when you start, one of the big lessons um, that, that fed into the design of the show was that you know, using words like sustainable and green and eco-conscious is actually um, very polarised and actually scares off a lot of the audience. So in this in the actual TV show, like we don't actually there's some banned words like eco and green, um, sustainable. We touch on very very light touch, but there are we don't use that terminology. Um, so the other thing the research also identified was that um, when people think about these types of homes, the way they describe these homes is they're homes that are comfortable, right? So they're yeah they're warm warm in winter and cool in summer. Um, they feel healthy, they feel fresh, they've got lots of natural light. Um, and so the vocabulary that consumers use to describe a housing product that was sustainable was completely different to what the builders would use to describe a, ha- a housing product. So they would talk about passive solar design and they'd talk about insulation and thermal mass uh, and U-values, which is a, a, a thermal um, measure of how windows perform, for example. And so they were using the wrong vocabulary. So a lot of the TV show um, work allowed us to then work out, well, how do we actually discuss sustainable housing design principles uh, and use it in a vocabulary that people understood and recognised? And so, you know, the TV show design, you know, we focused a lot on some very basic principles about how to make a home 
sustainable, right? Um, so yeah, things like um, that where you locate your daytime living area. So in the northern hemisphere where you guys are, so you want to locate your your daytime living areas on the southern side of your property, right? So that way you get access to all that natural light during the day. Uh, in winter, you can bring on that beautiful winter sun to heat up the space for free. Um, we then talk about you know the, the the building envelope, like being wrapped in a nice blanket all year round, which is insulation and air tightness. Uh, and then we talk about the appliances you put into the home um, around the energy efficiency and how to identify energy efficient appliance versus not energy efficient. Um, and typically they have like an energy star rating. And then we talk about how to actually produce your own power. So overall, the product we're positioning in the CV shows what we call a net zero energy home. So it's a home that produces the same amount of energy from renewables that it consumes. Um, but we also feature you know, extremely architectural and beautifully designed homes that look like any other house. Um, it's just that they're more comfortable, they're cheaper to run, um, they're healthier to, and they're healthier to live in. And that's how we position them. And that was all sort of off the back of what the research taught us consumers really want. So uh, in terms of uh, selling the homes, uh, do you have kind of uh, any relationships with builders or that are going to build these homes? Yeah. So, so part of the um, strategy for the TV show is that you know, we have a whole lot of partners on the TV show. We have companies that you know, do insulated wall systems. We have one of the partners who's featured on the show has high-performance windows. Um, we have a solar company, some battery companies, and the Tesla features in our show as well. Um, and so what we've done is we've assembled a whole lot of brands that have products that can help people build these types of homes. And one of the characteristics, I guess, of the building industry, um, the building industry is built off the back of demand. You know, if consumers want it, the building industry will deliver it, right? If they get consumers coming and saying, oh, I want this type of house, um, the bu- builders will build it, but they won't build it without that demand signal. So um, one of the ideas behind the show is to work with a small number of partners and builders and developers and help them be really successful at selling lots of product and then having the rest of the industry see that clear demand signal and then bring product to market so it becomes effectively the new normal. So where are you at in the uh, in the process of creating the new normal in Australia? Right at the beginning, I mean, I think there's interestingly, I think, the, this whole global pandemic and COVID has sort of created almost like the perfect storm of conditions for, for you know, people weren't stuck in their homes for, um, you know, here in Sydney, you know, we're in a lockdown at the moment um, due to an outbreak of this latest variant uh, of COVID. So people went stuck in their homes for, you know, the last year, year, year and a half. And they've suddenly realised that, you know, their homes are you know, freezing in winter or they're sticking hot in summer. And they've, they've noticed the deficiencies of their homes um, because they've been in them 24-7, all right? And so we're actually seeing like a massive building boom going on here in Australia, people upgrading their properties. Uh, and so, yeah, and there's lots of work going on around, you know, regulators, around improving energy efficiency, um, and we're seeing lots of demand uh, for this sort of product. And what, what our challenge is at the moment is to actually get the, the building industry to bring that product to market at scale. At the moment, there's probably a small, small number of builders that offer the type of housing that we would like to see in the market. Uh, and the idea is to get the rest of those builders along, which is where the TV shows are really meant to help them generate that demand so that they're, they're it's almost like slapping you in the face saying, look, consumers want this. They're going to start knocking your door, asking for it. You better start building it. Right. Well, I know that uh, one of my uh, previous guests, uh, Mayor uh, Rex Paris of Lancaster, California, he has uh, been championing this for quite some time and he's gotten a number of builders to help build 
more energy efficient homes in that community. And, uh, and it works. I mean, they've, they've been able to sell those homes and, and improve the energy efficiency of the community. So it, it's a win-win scenario. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it, it just, even just on the operating costs, I think there's a bit of an urban myth that these homes cost more to build, uh, but they don't. It's uh, 20 years ago. Yes. Um, I think they were more expensive to build, but these days, you know, pe- people forget that when you build these highly energy efficient homes, there's things you can take out of the house that you no longer need. So you need, you know, smaller air conditioners, you need smaller hot water systems. Um, you need, you know, less lighting because they're so efficient, right? So, uh, cause you're using all that natural light. So, um, you know, cost-wise, they're the same. What it needs is just smart design of people be consciously um, design those homes for those high performance. And look, I mean, look, California has led the world in many ways with your regulations around energy performance. Um, so you guys are sort of yeah, the, the almost a beacon in the on the distance, which everyone else is trying to catch up to. Um, but the, the standard we need need to get to um, globally is you know beyond even what California is doing at the moment for new builds. And I think the real challenge is also in all those existing homes that are out there. Like, you know, building a new home to a high standard is easy. Uh, upgrading and, and retrofitting and doing a home improvement to an old home um, brings up a whole lot of challenges. And that's why, you know, part of the show is looking at that renovate option. So they showed people some good tricks and things they can do um, to upgrade their homes economically, uh, but to get all those amazing benefits around, you know, homes that are healthier, homes that are more comfortable, homes that are more efficient. Um, homes that are cheaper to run and they're just nicer homes to be into and a sustainable home just means a quality home um, because you can't get it to perform to high standard if it's not built properly. Well, let me, let me ask you, I mean, uh, you've said some nice things about California, you know, where do we stand uh, compared to Australia in terms of um, getting to net zero, how far ahead or how far behind are we? Are we kind of equal where, where do those two uh, entities uh, stand? Yeah, so 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 I think we look at California in particular. I think California is well down the path towards heading towards net zero compared to where we are in Australia. I think we compare US and Australia in general. We're probably about the same about the same level in terms of our our pathway towards net zero. Though your current president um, is a lot more bullish on this, which is fantastic. Um, and it's great to see. Um, so so I think yeah. At, between the two countries, we're probably in a, in a similar position towards our pathway towards net zero. Um, but I think California, I mean, everyone's got a lot of work to do to get there. Um, but I think California is probably leading the pack or one of the leaders of the pack at the moment anyway. Yeah, it's, well, it's good to hear. I mean, I, what I try to remind people is that uh, California has, a, has an economy that's outperformed the rest of the United States economy over the last you know, a couple of decades. So we can both have a clean and healthy economy uh, that's, that's growing at a good rate. So sometimes uh, that what, what is sold is that, Oh, if we go greener and go, uh, you know, net zero, then the economy is going to fall to pieces. But the truth is that's, that's not the case. I mean, we've, we've got hundreds of, of companies that are public companies that are building products that are green. So there are tons of green jobs out there if we if we go in that direction. But uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get back after our break. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KABC 790. Your host, Matt Mattern and uh, James McGregor of Blue Tribe, CEO out of Australia. So we'll be back in just one minute. 
You're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern, your host. We've got James McGregor on from across the uh, Pacific Ocean. James, uh, we were just talking about profit and purpose and some of the things that you're working on back in Australia. And I know that that's uh, a topic near and dear to my heart is that uh, we can have a capitalistic approach towards cleaning up the environment. And I know there's hundreds of publicly traded companies here in the U.S. that are working on green solutions to our problems. So green jobs can be uh, created and are being created. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about the green economy in Australia and and what you see in the future. Yeah, look, I I 100% agree. I think that, you know, oftentimes there's this belief that profit and purpose are like at two ends of a spectrum uh, and and at opposite ends of a spectrum. But in fact, I think they're actually mutually supporting concepts. Um, And we certainly, there's lots of evidence emerging around companies that, um, you know, produce great products that also do great things for the planet, uh, outperform companies that don't. Uh, and so if we look at something like, say, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, for example, um, you know, what, I, what I describe as the world's most important to-do list, um, you know, just addressing the Sustainable Development Goals on their own um, is a $4 trillion marketplace, all right? And, and then what we're talking about is, you know, lifting people out of poverty and cleaning up the oceans and making our cities smarter, uh, and, and all and all these, you know, making our food system sustainable, um, all these great outcomes is a massive market opportunity for businesses. But it's not just, you know, a trillion sounds like, and that's like something for the global conglomerates to deal with. Um, you know, part of the philosophy around our business is that, um, you know, we believe that every business can be a force for good and every project we work on uh, can be a force for good. And that comes down to even through, you know, one of the things that we like to say when we work with our customers is that every time you do business with us, something great happens in the world. Uh, and, and we do that by you know, philanthropy uh, and just through the nature of the projects uh, that we do. Uh, and it all comes down to the local coffee shop, right? And so it doesn't have to be a big GE or um, Amazon that needs to deal this stuff. Like the local corner store can actually do stuff that actually makes the world a better place. Um, just our local coffee shop, for example, recently completely got rid of uh, single-use coffee cups, all right? So if you want to go buy a cup of coffee, um, you have a personalized mug, which you'd leave there, has your name on it, uh, and they will wash it before you take it home. You can bring it back. Um, but then they've basically eliminated all that waste just from a coffee cup, all right? And now what they now have is a um, – now they save 20 cents per cup of coffee, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when a cup of coffee is like $4 – um, that's a reasonable profit margin that goes back into their pockets. But they also have this loyal customer base because now I've paid like $10 for my mug that they have there. Like I feel obliged to go and use it now. So all of a sudden they're, they're probably getting more cups of coffee off me and they're saving waste and they're making the world a better place. Um, so I think you know, there is lots of things that people can do uh, in their businesses. Well, I, we were talking a little bit off uh, on the break about uh, cost accounting for the uh, externalities, the economic term, uh, which is things that occur related to a business that aren't necessarily on the balance sheet. And for companies like Exxon, for example, that are polluting, but don't put on the balance sheet what the cost, the true costs of that pollution are. And I think we're starting to move in that direction. We're forcing or encouraging uh, companies to put on the books to tell their shareholders, hey, we have this potential cost, which uh, it relates to our activities of polluting the country. 
what are you seeing seeing in Australia on that front? Yeah, so I think there's there's well, so our financial system, for example, has now made it almost mandatory for organisations to disclose their climate risks. For example, um, I mean a lot of our companies, you know, we work with um, companies in the minerals sector, in the mining sector as well, uh, and so you know they yeah they realise that there are you know, these externalities and their their social life. I think there's for those sorts of organisations, whether it be you know, mining or organisations that have you know, large pollution footprints, this concept of yeah, their, their social licence to operate is under threat, and, it's, and it is a real threat. It's not it's not you know mistaken, um, you know, and they see that, and they they're starting to change uh, their behaviours and, and and they're learning as they go. Right, and I think that's important. I mean, it sort of goes to the theme of. Um, you know, this show, right? So you're not in Hill America or uh, as we said before, you're not in Hill the Globe. You know, there are, you know, there are people who are coming from a place that it's very hard for them to transition towards net zero, right? And we, you know, and the, the one, you know, I'm in a major coal mining centre here in Australia. And I think, you know, one of the things I often say to people is, you know, we need to distinguish the war on coal compared with the war on coal mining communities, right? So the war on coal is a war on the technology, right? It's the wrong fuel source, there's lots of alternatives, but there are people whose livelihoods depend on it, right? And if you go to war with them, human beings being trouble, well, they're just going to dig in, right? And you're never going to get anywhere. So we need to make sure that we bring them with us. So we give them the tools and resources and skills and opportunities so that they become part of building that future and they see the opportunity for themselves. Um, so, yeah, and I think we're seeing how are, that in that. How are, in that how are you doing that? How are you doing that in Australia? Because I, I just read an article about this here in the States and saying that, uh, you know, some of the solar companies are, are not paying their uh, employees wages that are similar to people coming out of, say, the energy sector or things like that. So uh, how are you addressing that those concerns there in Australia? Yeah, so so a lot, a lot of that, a lot of that work here is yeah. My, my view is sustainability is a team sport, right? And you can't you can't do it on your own. And what we're seeing is a lot of um, coming together of academia, you know, research and development with government, with private industry, uh, and particularly here in the Hunter Valley. So we're we're leading an initiative um, here in the Hunter Valley called Net, Net Zero Hunter, uh, and it's about transitioning you know this coal reliant um, industry or community towards a net zero future. Uh, and what we're doing is we're currently looking for, yeah, there are a million options towards net zero. You, know, you can go for solar and battery systems. You can go for circular economy around manufacturing. You can go for green chemistry, this whole stack of things to do. So what we're doing, we're looking at, you know, what is the makeup of the skills and the jobs and the sort of incomes that people have in this region? And we're identifying technology solutions that are best aligned to the existing skill sets. So it's not hard for someone to transition out of working in a, power station to start working in a um, battery manufacturing facility or, or managing um, a electrical system for uh, energy storage, for example. Um, it's not hard for someone who's got a background as a boilermaker making pressure vessels for power stations to move into a manufacturing role, which requires the same sort of welding skills, right? So it's almost like, it's almost like we have to pick the winners to suit the workforce that we have today uh, and, and, Get people tell the story, right? This comes back to this, you know, the TV show, right? Tell a tell a story of what the future looks like and what what is their role in that story, right? Are they Luke Skywalker? Are they Obi Wan Kenobi, right? You know, what is their place in the in are they an Ewok, right? What's their place in the story of the future that we all want? 
and I think that narrative piece is really important and having people being part of creating the story. And when people can see the future, then all that fear goes away. Like they're, they're not, they're not going to dig in into the trenches to defend their position because now, now we're all sort of moving to that same future. It's sort of the same as that lecture I gave when I split the two groups up, right? You know, they all wanted the same thing, but if we focused on today and what was happening today, they were going to get into a punch-up. Uh, and so, yeah, so this, this project we're working on is around, there's a number of elements. Sort of the narrative is a really important piece around painting what that future looks like and how each person in the region fits into that story. Uh, and then there's also the idea of, yeah, let's actually, we have to pick some winners here and choose technologies and choose areas to invest in. Um, that are best suited to the population for this particular region. So we, we we give them a clear opportunity to participate in what's going to be a better future. So is there a, a plan in terms of how quickly uh, that region is going to get away from coal and uh, where are you at in that uh, phase? Are you phase uh, 10% done, 5% or how, how far are you from that goal? Uh, from that goal. So, so we're setting a goal for 2050 um, today. Um, I hope we'll ratchet that back at some point. Um, and I guess we're, we're just starting on that journey now. I think the, you know, we're starting to, you know, there's lots of activity particularly around the um, innovation space. There's lots of work in that R&D area in the region. We've got some of the best research capability here in the Hunter um, of anywhere on the planet for some of these problems. Um, and now it's really about getting some of that infrastructure on the ground. So hopefully in the next couple of years, we'll start seeing that start to emerge. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly disheartening to see so many uh, countries using coal. And I know China is, has been exporting coal plants to various third world countries uh, for their power generation needs, which seems... Uh, you know, counterproductive to what our ultimate goal is. And it seems as though China does have an interest and is taking some positive steps towards helping improve the climate, but that uh, that's not one of them. But you, any engagement since you're a lot closer to China than, than we are uh, as to what you see their path, because obviously they're the, one of the biggest uh, polluters on the planet right now. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I, mean, I, I did a lot of work in China uh, when I was doing research projects. So I think there's lots of activity going on. Uh, I think on the issue of coal, I mean, the Stone Age didn't come to, come to an end because we ran out of stones, right? Um, and I think the same is going to happen with coal. Uh, and so, like, investing in coal-fired power plants, I think, is very risky these days. Uh, and I think it, it will come to its natural course. I think what I'm seeing, like, a, a massive momentum across the globe around moving away from that into better solutions. And I think it's like a, it's a wave that's not going to be stopped. Uh, and, a, and, a, and individual action by countries are important, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see how the future plays out. If I had a crystal ball, I'd be uh, very happy, but I don't. Well, James, uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show and uh, uh, we hope, uh, wish you the best with your TV show launch and tell us where we can uh, tune in on Netflix or, whatever uh, platform you're going to be streaming this from. Yeah, well, it'll be, hopefully it'll be on a U.S. network as well uh, at some point, uh, not after, long after production. So I'll, I'll drop you a line. I'll let you know when, what, okay. what network you can watch it on. We'll definitely post it up here. And uh, we wish you the best going forward. You've been listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Matter and your host. And uh, you've been listening to James McGregor of Blue Tribe, CEO uh, of this company back in Australia. So tune back in next week and we'll look forward to uh, talking with 
a great guest again next week.